0: Hello everyone, welcome to Hacking the Hustle. This is your host, Benji Sklar, and I'm really excited about this episode today because not only do I have my fiancé, Barry, as my co-host, but we have Chris Godinez, one of the leading psychologists out there in the world today, on on the podcast today. Hi Chris. Hello, and just a correction, I am a licensed professional counselor, I am not a psychologist. Thank you very much, I appreciate that. Well, you're, you're not only a licensed professional counselor, but you're a speaker, an author, a uh, YouTube sensation, and we are really excited to have you on the podcast today. So before we even... Thank you for having me. Of course. So before we even jump into your, uh, what you're working on today, and we'd love to hear your story, like where, where you come from, where are you located right now, and what are you working on these days?
1: Well, I am out of Phoenix, Arizona, and um, where did I come from? Well, I grew up in a very dysfunctional family. My dad was an opiate addict and an alcoholic. He was incredibly abusive, and growing up, I realized this is not normal, so I started doing self-exploration, going to therapy, working on myself, all of that sort of good stuff, and Mm -hmm. in 2001, I moved from... Uh, Oregon where I was living where I was starting to investigate becoming a counselor to Arizona and I went through the University of Phoenix and I got my uh, community counseling master's degree and then I did my two year uh, internship. you know when you're working on your hours supervised hours with the Lodestar Day Resource Center, working with the homeless and addicted population. And then as soon as I got my my professional license, going from my LAC, licensed associate counselor, to my LPC, I opened up my own private practice called AHA Counseling. I very quickly realized that there are a lot of abusers out there and that there is not enough information on how to heal from abuse how to get out of an abusive relationship and so I started focusing my practice on domestic violence and started writing a book I started off with um, What's Wrong With Your Dad which is about my childhood growing up you know, and what I did to save myself and then I wrote You can lead a horse to water but you can't make him cha-cha Why some people stay in abuse and others don't because some people do stay in an abusive relationship their entire life and other people are like, nope, having none of it. Peace out.
2: Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, hey Chris, it's Barry and whoever else is listening. Um so I I love your whole story. It's amazing and inspiring, and I'm totally following in your steps. Um, when did you know you wanted to become a counselor and take this route of of teaching and using your experience to help others? Well, so
1: originally, I thought I wanted to be an actress because I enjoyed pretending. I enjoyed escaping into a role and becoming somebody else. Totally. And so I moved down to Los Angeles in 1989, and I started working down there as an actor. And I got a few small roles, nothing major, you know, a few commercials, that kind of thing. And um, to support myself, I worked as a hairdresser. And as I was working as a hairdresser, all of these actors were coming in and getting their hair done and pouring their hearts out to me. And I was like, my God, no wonder the tabloids have all this scoop on people. I'm sure that, you know, people would just sell this information and make money off of it. And so I started, you know, kind of unofficially counseling people when I was a hairdresser. (laughs) That's great. (laughs) i realized you know what i'm in the wrong profession i need to be able to help people long term it's great to be able to make them smile or laugh while they're watching the movie or watching whatever but i wanted to make a difference long term and that's when i started thinking oh you know what i i would like to either be a social worker or a counselor and so then my husband my boyfriend at the time but my husband now john he got a uh, uh his uh master's degree, he got accepted into Oregon, and uh, Portland, up in Portland. And so we moved up to Portland. And that's when I started looking at social work. And then as I was doing social work courses, he then got a job in Arizona. And then I moved to Arizona. And then that's when I went, No, I want to be a counselor. And that's when I went for that. So
2: Wow, um, love that. So inspiring. Um, So I, I don't know if you know, but I'm also I've studied psychology. I got my master's in clinical art therapy and mental health counseling. So, yeah, I'm in the process of uh, getting my hours right now so I could get a license. And my dream is to have my own private practice. Um, Do it. Yeah. Absolutely do it. Absolutely. (laughs) I
1: love being in private practice. I can go to work in my sweatpants. Mm -hmm. And it's so funny because it's like people will come in and they'll be like you're wearing sweatpants and i'm like dude i'm the boss
2: yes so i love <laughs> that i can
1: do whatever i want
2: how did so, you yeah. how did you go about opening your private practice what obstacles came up and how did you work through this
1: so i had incredible support from my husband he's john is just my fucking rock he's amazing he's he's the greatest guy and um, the biggest obstacle was building the, the practice. So it's like when you first open up, it's like, you know, nobody knows you. They're not gonna be getting you don't have word of mouth. You don't have anything like that. So the first two years were kinda hard because, you know, you didn't have that many clients. But then after that word of mouth gets going and oh my God it took off. So wow. yeah, the first two years I would say are the the they're the scariest because you're new and you're kinda like trying to find what your jam is and what your style of counseling is and you know, you have to find your own way of doing things. And of course, everybody's got their opinions. And ultimately, at the end of the day, you got to trust your gut.
2: Totally. Yeah. Love that. Love that. Um, Do you have other clinicians working for you at your practice? Or is it just you?
1: It's just me. And I love it. Yeah.
2: Yeah.
1: (laughs) So what I did is I have i I, I'm a very sociable person. And so I've made friends with a lot of people in different medical fields. So mm-hmm. I know chiropractors, I know psychiatrists, I know social workers, I know, you know. And so one of the um, psych, or, um, chiropractors was like, hey, I've got this office that's, you know, not being used. Would you like to rent it? And I'm like, yes, please. So so that's how I got my office is I'm in a chiropractic office, which is Mm -hmm. great. So because if I need to send people for chiropractic or medical, it's all right there. So
2: nice. Um. All right. So, I mean, we can continue talking about this. I love this, but I also know that your specialty or your just primary area of focus is, is abuse. And I think that when people hear the word abuse, they, and their, their default is to think of physical abuse or sexual abuse and not many people understand emotional, psychological, or just more covert abusive scenarios. Could you Explain to the listeners what that looks like.
1: So what abusers do is not always overt. A lot of times it's covert and it's manipulation. So they will do things. And it's funny because I'm going to talk about this tomorrow on my show. What they do is they do something called gaslighting, meaning they lie. They rewrite history. And it's not always super obvious. So, for example, an abuser will... Um, say something horrible to the child, like horrible, accuse them of stealing or accuse them of lying or, you know, things like that. And then a day or two later, the child will bring it up to the adult and the adult will sit there. The abuser will sit there and look at them and go, I never said that. That never happened. What are you talking about? You're crazy. Do you see where I'm going with that?
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah.
1: That's abuse. That is because you're taking that person's reality their perception and twisting it the other thing that they'll do is that you bring a valid concern to an abuser let's say we're dealing with a romantic relationship you know hey when you said this or when you did this this really hurt my feelings well you made me they flip it around and now it's your fault and suddenly the focus gets taken off of them and put onto you that too is abuse because they're not owning their stuff and they're trying to rewrite history and say it never happened.
0: Right. How do you open people's eyes to the fact that they're in an abusive relationship, whether that's with their sibling, parent, or boss at work?
1: Well, basically, unfortunately, it it is almost like dealing with an addiction. And here's the reason why. Alcoholics will not go get help until it is too painful to keep in the relationship with the alcohol. People in an abusive relationship will not go get help until it is too painful to stay in the relationship with the abuser. If you try to help them before they're ready, they're going to resist like nobody's business. Why? Because the abuser does intermittent positive rewards. So just like in the POW camps where the guards would sometimes beat the prisoners and sometimes be nice to them, that's what abusers do. So nice, 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 abuse, 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 nice, abuse, nice, 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 abuse, 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 nice, abuse, 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 abuse. And pretty soon the prisoners a.k.a. the survivors or the the victims, the targets of abuse, start living for the days when the abuser is kind. They also get brainwashed to defend the abuser. So you will have kids that are getting the living crap beaten out of them, and when CPS comes to take them away, or DCS as it's called now, comes to take them away, they will literally be like, no, 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 it was my fault. No, it's it's not them, it's me, because they've been brainwashed to believe that. Mm-hmm. So that's why it's incredibly hard to convince somebody that they are, in, in fact, in an abusive relationship. And until they're ready to take a look at it, just like reaching rock bottom with alcoholism, they're not going to see it. The denial is so intense. The fear is so intense that it's really hard for them to take a look at the situation with eyes open and go, wow, wow. This person who was supposed to love me and take care of me is actually abusing the crap out of me.
2: Wow. Yeah. Um, and I think that's what makes it so difficult for people to get out is how much of a roller coaster it is because abuse. Oh, isn't, yeah. <clears throat> abuse isn't always like this consistent intense, like bad, like sometimes something common that I hear is, yeah, but the good times are so good. They're so nice. They love me so much. And this like love bombing or this rewarding that you're talking about will sometimes keep people stuck or confused or maybe feel guilty when they are trying to leave because they're like, yeah, this person like just did something fucked up. I'm out. And then the person's like, Oh, no, I love you. Look at this. Look at that. How much I love you. What advice would you have for somebody who's stuck in this limbo and kind of holding on and super attached or still like under the spell of the love bombing?
1: Well, the you got to start looking at the patterns. And this is when most people start waking up, is when I ask them, let's do a history of your relationship. Let's look at the patterns. Let's look at what happens. And when I start describing the abuse analog clock, so 12 o'clock, you meet the person. Love bomb, love bomb, love bomb. The, everything's fantastic. It's over the top. It's, it's amazing. There's roses and sunshine and unicorn farts and everything else, right? And three o'clock, things start changing. Now the abuser has you in their grip. You are in the thrall. You think this is your soulmate. You think this is fantastic because they told you that. And then at about three o'clock, things start changing and the little snarkiness starts slipping in. The love bombing stops. The devalue starts and they start treating you terribly and you're confused what happened to Mr. or Mrs. Wonderful? Where did they go? The tension builds, the tension builds, the tension builds, and then the mask drops completely, and the abuse comes out full force with name-calling, angry outbursts, raging, put-downs, etc. Then you go up. Ah, you know what? This is bullshit. I'm not putting up with it. Peace out. You start to leave, and then, boom, we're right back at 12 o'clock again, and the love bombing starts all over again. And it's a cycle and it goes multiple times before people catch on to it and figure it out.
0: Mm -hmm. How do you open the eyes of the abuser? And why? You don't.
1: You don't. (laughs) They fucking, let me tell you, their eyes are wide open. They know exactly what they're doing. They have no desire to change. There's no payoff to changing for them. Mm -hmm. So, because they do not, listen to me now, believe me later, abusers do not have empathy. They cannot love the way that we understand love. They don't feel what another person feels. If you felt what another person felt, if you recognized that you and I are no different, if you recognize that we are literally all one, right, you would never dare to harm another living creature, Mm -hmm. ever, because you know what that feels like. Narcissists, don't give a flying rat's
0: ass. So you say narcissist. What are the other kinds of uh, personality disorders or types of abuse that exist in, in the world of psychology, uh, well, emotional so abuse?
1: What you're going to see is that your abusers are going to be in the cluster Bs. So you've got cluster A's, which are uh, schizotypal, schizoaffective, you've got cluster B's, which are, and I'm going to forget some of them because I don't have my DSM in front of me, but the cluster B's are your antisocial, your narcissistic, your borderline personality disorder, your histrionic personality disorder. And then there, I think there's one more that I'm missing. And then you have cluster C's, which are obsessive compulsive avoidant, And, fuck i can't remember what the other one is but anyway so your your abusers are going to be found in the cluster b's so those are going to be your antisocial which is your psychopath your narcissist, and your borderlines now let me make this very clear when i say a borderline i do not mean traits of i don't mean somebody who's a quiet borderline who is internalizing it and torturing themselves I am talking about a borderline who has slid all the way down to malignancy, enjoys what they're doing, knows what they're doing, and doesn't give a flying rat's ass what they're doing. Does that make sense?
2: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Just bouncing off Benji's question before, before his last question, um, what advice would you have for somebody who is kind of holding on to this this empty promise or this false hope that the abuser is going to get better, that they can change the abuser, wake them up, or help improve the relationship mutually? Because I think a lot of times people have a hard time coming to terms that gray rock or no contact might be the only way out. Like they hold on to right. this hope that the abuser might change. So what advice do you yeah. have for that?
1: Well, here's the first and foremost. Never Listen to me now, believe me later. Never go to couples counseling with an abuser. Why? Because it is fucking dangerous. Oh, what yeah. they will do oh, yeah. is they will either manipulate the counselor who may or may not know, you know, what they're dealing with. Um, especially what abusers do is they tend to try to go for counselors that have no clue what narcissism is or abuse is or anything like that. So they'll get brand new counselors. They'll go to somebody who doesn't know, God bless them, what they're doing, right? Because they want to be able to manipulate. Either they'll manipulate the counselor into siding with them because remember, they're very charming. So they'll, they'll flirt with the counselor. They'll, you know, try to when the counselors, you know, like of them and then turn everything to make it so it's all the spouse's fault or you will go to a couples counseling that doesn't happen you bring up legitimate concerns when you leave that building the abuser will turn on you and bring up everything that you said in counseling against you.
0: Mhm. You say nar- was- you say narcissist <laughs> and to me narcissist mm-hmm. means someone who cares about themselves they're they okay. all, they're looking Listen, in the mirror all the time. What is what do you mean that, by narcissism? That is the
1: traditional view of narcissism. That's the that's the layman's view of narcissism. Narcissism has got nine different criteria. And of those criteria, there is a sense of entitlement, indeed to be perceived as especially uh, deserving of rewards when there is no commiserating evidence that you've done anything to deserve those awards. Um, there is A sense of exploiting other people. There is, um, you know, there's nine of them. I don't, unfortunately, I'm not sitting in front of my computer. I'm out on my hammock now. But um, there's nine different criteria. So I would strongly suggest looking up the criteria for narcissistic personality disorder. And oftentimes, when I start reading off the criteria, the the targets of abuse will look at me and go, check, check, Mm -hmm. check, check. All you need is five. Malignant narcissists have more than five. Mm -hmm. So five gives you the personality disorder. Some people have all nine. So, yeah, they're dangerous. They're effing dangerous. It's not just looking in the mirror and going, oh, I'm fabulous. I'm the greatest thing ever. No, 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 no. They are into manipulation. They are into um, harming. They enjoy it. They are sadistic. They like hurting people. Do you see where I'm going with that? Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: And why do they do that?
1: It's an ego thing. They are 110% ego. There is no there there. When you're dealing with a narcissist, when you're dealing with a malignant narcissist, when they have reached the end of the line and they have got more than five of the um, criteria needed, they are probably a dark triad. And a dark triad is a narcissist that also has psychopathy. They're a psychopath combined with control freak, they have to control everybody around them because they are so internally out of control. They are dangerous and they want their victims dead. So what I've seen them do, it's they either soul kill them, meaning they get the person to the point where they literally believe the abuse that's coming out of the narcissist's mouth. You're worthless, you're stupid, you're ugly, you're fat, you're this, you're that. And the person starts believing it okay, Mm -hmm. and starts making the world smaller and smaller and smaller, and eventually they disappear, and all that matters is the narcissist, okay, Mm -hmm. that's soul killing, the other thing I've seen them do is that they will intentionally drive their spouse to suicide, they will be so horrible to them that the spouse is like on the verge of a nervous breakdown, and they just go and push them over the edge, and then when they kill themselves, they get to play the victim, Oh. I'm a widow or I'm a widower, poor me. But then inside, they're sitting there gleefully rubbing their hands together going, look at how powerful I am. I made them kill themselves. They killed themselves over me. Wow. Ha uh-huh. ha!" The other thing I've seen them do is that if the spouse has got some sort of medical condition, let's say, for example, diabetes, they will shove candies mm-hmm. and alcohol and everything, carbs, at them in an effort to kill them. That's ultimately what they want. They are dangerous.
2: Wow. Um, and this is so intense and so sad for people who are living in relationships like this. I just can't even imagine. Um, but to just Mm -hmm. go back to the more covert abuse or just the more typical abuse that we see happening so often, um, I know that with, with covert abuse and just like a lot of gaslighting, it's common for victims or the target of abuse when they come forward to, to feel crazy or to be alienated because narcissists usually start like a smear campaign. So what, what do you have to say, or what would your advice be to a a client who is starting to feel alienated from their family or from family members that are kind of under the spell of the narcissist? Um, So here's
1: the thing when the target of abuse figures out that they are being abused and they start breaking away the narcissist in a panic because they realize they're losing control of this person and it is all about power and control it is not about love and that's where a lot of the younger kids get confused because they're like oh but he or she is jealous that means he loves me no that jealousy is a power and control issue that is not a love issue that Mm -hmm. is i want to control you issue so when the smear campaign starts there are things called flying monkeys Mm -hmm. flying (laughs) monkeys are family members co-workers uh, friends, etc., that side with the abuser. Now there are two types of flying monkeys. They are either just ignorant; they do not understand how abusers work, and so they're easily gullible. They're easily swayed. Okay, or you're dealing with a bunch of minor narcissists yourself that are enjoying being associated with a major narcissist. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So you are going to probably change your entire family in in, in that you will leave them if they are flying monkeys get out save yourself you are under no obligation to stay in an abusive situation and family is not always blood Mm -hmm. so you hang out you find your own tribe and if you are around people that are siding with your abuser punt them to the curb they have no business being in your new healthy life
2: right and what if they're not even like purposely siding with the abuser? Because as you said, like sometimes these covert narcissists can present as really charming and really innocent and, oh, I'm the victim and just a lot of concern for their target mm-hmm. and people mm-hmm. around them like fall for that. Like, what are you talking about? Like mom or dad loves you. They, they say all the time how much they love you. They just want to spend time with you. How would someone navigate that?
1: So what you do is you educate them if you can and you just go, Look, here's what I went through. Read this book. The object of my affection is in my reflection, coping with a narcissist by Roquel Lerner, read this book. You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make a cha cha by Chris Godinas. Woo. Read this book. Do you see where I'm going? It's yeah. like and if if after you have educated them and they see it or they're in denial about it that's when you go okay lovely knowing you have a nice life block delete <laughs> do you see where i'm going Mm-hmm. You educate them, and then if they are still fighting with the abuser, you punt them to the curb. The other thing that I hear a lot of people do, especially when you're dealing with a uh, a family situation where the parents are the abusers. Right. So a lot of people get the Judeo-Christian, oh, honor, they mother and father. Okay, people, the next line is parents, do not bring your children to anger. Hello, boom, mic drop. It's a two-way street, right. even in the Bible. Right,
2: right. Um, so as you're bringing up like the theme of adult of, of parents being the narcissist abusers, what have you seen in your experience in your practice? Um, sorry, our puppy is going crazy oh, right now. Puppy. Oh, hello, puppy. <laughs> of course he wants puppy. to play during the podcast. Um, what
1: kind of puppy do you have?
2: He's a peagle, a mix between a beagle and Pekingese. Oh my God, how cute. Yeah, he's like seven months old, so he's all over the place. Oh. Um, sorry, I
1: love dogs. So, anyway, what was your first experience?
2: Oh, <laughs> in your experience, um, what are some of the uh, consequences, not, I wouldn't say consequences, but what are some typical traits or things you see in adult children of narcissists? Like, as some of the consequences in romantic relationships or even in, in work, like, what happens to them if they have this unhealed trauma? So-
1: if they have an unhealed trauma, what ends up happening is their inner child is actually running the show.
2: Mm-hmm. And that is
1: no bueno. You don't want five-year-old you who's desperately trying to seek you know, abusive mom or dad's approval picking your romantic partners. Because what we tend to do is little five-year-old us or however old we were – Looks outside, you know, here's the original wound over here where mom and dad were, right? So mm-hmm. we're, we're wounded. And then we look outside and we go, ooh, subconsciously, this person
2: reminds me. I
1: want to get a little more dad. personal, but know if I can make them love me, I prove mom or dad wrong. Right. But instead, what you get is half of a shit sandwich, half of a shit sandwich, total shit sandwich. And then you end up replaying the abuse from childhood with a romantic partner and that's the danger the other thing that we do too is that if we do not heal this wound we will seek out subconsciously situations where that abuse is happening over and over so romantically or in the workplace we will go find work situations where the boss is either a covert or an overt narcissist or an abuser or co-workers are and then we keep replaying wash rinse repeat you know
2: For sure. I've also seen like, or just in in whatever research I've done and in experience, which is nothing compared to yours, by the way, I'm still like, very young and learning all of this. But that, um, you know, growing up with with no respect toward boundaries, or not knowing oh, yeah. how to implement boundaries. You see that echo like in in work situations where coworkers or yep. bosses take advantage of you, friends start yep. kind of, and you just have no sense of boundaries. Um, right. And right. I, look, no
1: self-esteem, no self-esteem, no sense of boundaries. You will have picked up fleas from them. So impatience, maybe anger issues, um, you know, just nasty stuff that we've picked up from being around our abuser
2: yeah um and going back to uh just the topic of like adult children of narcissists how would you recommend um well i mean I feel like that's a stupid question. What about? No, like, it's not. There
1: are, there are no <laughs> stupid questions. Go ahead and
2: ask it. Um, so, when this adult child is trying to individualize, trying to differentiate and kind of spread their wings in the world and build romantic mm-hmm. relationships of their own, yet there's mm-hmm. this conflict because they're still extremely enmeshed with the narcissist parent. How would you recommend mm-hmm. that child, be- and I imagine too, that when this adult child begins dating or building a relationship with another, the narc starts squeezing tighter, digging their heels in, and just kind of ramping up the abuse to rein that child back in. So. Oh yeah,
1: absolutely. Yeah. So it's going to be a, a really difficult transition period when an adult child of an abuser starts breaking free the abuser gets very angry and starts calling in the flying monkeys and starts doing the guilt tripping and starts doing the you know the letter writing and the emailing and the texting and the calling and the you know trying again to maintain control the best thing a kid can do is to start working on self-esteem and there are some really good self-esteem workbooks out there i like the Self-Esteem Workbook by Glenn Shiroldi. The other one I like is You Are a Badass by Jen Sincero. I, I believe love that book. there's a book and a workbook. Yeah. So those are the ways to start strengthening what you are doing. So the biggest thing that a narcissist does or an abuser does is that they make us question always, well, you're not doing the right thing. How do you know you're doing the right thing? You're not doing your. So don't listen to your head. Don't listen to your heart. Start cultivating listening to your
2: gut. It yeah. will
1: never steer you wrong. Yeah. So always ask it, you know, yes or no questions. Hey, gut, should I be doing this? Yes or no? And it'll tell you. And you start by trusting your gut because, okay, so when we're with an abusive family, they do not want us using our intuition because our gut is screaming at us. When I was a kid, I used to throw up almost every day. Oh, Why? That's horrible. Because my gut was telling me this was a toxic situation, but I kept getting told, no, 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 you don't see the pink elephant in the corner of the living room taking a shit. So then I <laughs> shut down my intuition, right? Yeah. And then as a young adult, I dated Ben who reminded me of my dad. Yay! Mm-hmm. Not a good thing. Mm-hmm. So... As I started working on self esteem, going to therapy, working on self esteem, working on boundaries, working on codependency, because we learn to be very codependent because we have to take care of the narcissist. That's their demand take care of me, take care of me, take care of me. You know, feed my right. ego, feed my ego. So as we start working on ourselves and differentiating, it is hugely important to get with a good trauma therapist, work on the self esteem workbooks, whether it's You Are a Badass or the self esteem workbook. Get the codependency books, uh, Codependent No More and Beyond Codependent No More by Melanie Beattie and The Disease to Please by Harriet Breaker, and start trusting your gut. And how do we do that? Well, we start with things that we already know. So for me, I can't stand peanut butter, right? But I love Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. Go figure. So when I ask my gut, okay, okay, gut, do I, yes or no, do I like peanut butter? It's almost like a visceral reaction. It's like, oh no, I don't like peanut butter. Okay, gut. Do I like Reese's peanut butter cups? Ooh, yes, yes, I do. So that's how you start differentiating what your gut is and what your heart and your head are. Your heart and your head tell stories. So the heart and the head would be like, well, you kind of sort of like peanut butter, but not really, and blah, 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 blah. Do you see where I'm going with that?
2: Yeah.
0: When when you talked about codependency, to me, I don't really know what that means. I'm dependent on someone, like I'm dependent on Barry, but I don't feel like that's what you're really referring to. No, no.
1: So codependency is when somebody was groomed so grooming so think of a predator grooming a child not sexually in this case but uh, it could be sexual but With abusers, they groom the child to be attuned to the narcissist's every need, every mood, every vocal inflection, every everything that they you know, to anticipate what the narcissist will need. So we learn very quickly that if we please the abuser, that we get good strokes for it, we get praise, we get whatever. We then start associating that. With self esteem. Well, as long as they love me, I'm okay. As long as they are happy, I'm okay. As long as they're okay, I'm okay. And that is other esteem. That is not self esteem. Self esteem is just that tiny little voice in your head that goes, Hey, I love you. Good job. Keep going. Oops, you fucked up. Okay, make amends. Okay, good you did. Okay, forgive yourself. Okay, move on. That's self esteem. It does not depend on another person, it depends on you. So, codependency is when we are so concerned about what other people think about us, what other people are saying about us, the strokes that we're getting from other people, that is codependent.
0: Got it.
2: Yeah. And, you know, I I also imagine that codependency is usually a strong trait of those who are targets of abuse because of the grooming and the manipulation that has happened. And makes it so much harder for targets to leave because they are still so like this belief that, you know, I'm dependent on this person being happy. It's my job to make this person happy is so deeply embedded. And it's
1: really hard with the covert narcissists, especially, because the covert narcissists are the ones that usually play the victim and usually do the hypochondriac thing. Oh, yeah. Um, The the overt narcissists are the ones who, you know, are just blatantly, it's about, you know, they literally walk into a room and say, it's all about me. Like, literally, I have heard them say that. And I'm just like, oh, crap. So, you know. So the the covert ones are a little harder to deal with because they play the victim and they play the, oh, I need you because I'm sick and you can't leave me. How dare you go live your own life and go have fun? Why didn't I get to have fun? Blah, blah, blah. You know, they're just horrible that way.
2: Yeah, yeah. So this all is so complex and so difficult, and I'm so glad that you're just kind of taking a role of educating the public. I mean, for people that don't know which I don't think anyone knows that I've been a fan of yours for so long and you've been so helpful for me. I've been watching your videos obsessively for the past few years since I found you. Um okay. Yeah, and I know that, you know, with all of this because we've been talking about what these traits look like, what the experience looks like, um so maybe we could start moving into boundaries, like what it looks yes. like to start breaking these patterns and to start becoming individual and I'm wondering, from your perspective, why are boundaries so fucking hard to implement?
1: Oh, because it's, we got punished if we had boundaries. Mm-hmm. If we locked the door, if we said no, holy shitballs, all hell would break loose. And I do mean all hell. So, for example, my dad was sexually abusive towards me. And if I locked the bathroom door, he would stand there at the door and scream and pound on it wow. like I had just denied him air. Wow. Seriously. And then, of course, I never heard the end of it. This was getting towards the end when I finally moved out. But, yeah, they're crazy. They're, they will punish you for even enforcing You know physical boundaries so god forbid you should tell them no no i'm not going to go to church that was one thing that he used to do to me he's like you are going to go to church with me or you're going to go to hell and i looked at him one day and i said well well, i guess i'll save you a seat at front where it's warm (laughs) (laughs) i love that my my mouth got me into a lot of trouble
2: i love your mouth chris i love it (laughs) so
1: i mean if you tell a narcissist or an abuser no they view that as narcissistic injury
2: right
1: and their little egos and when i say little i really mean the size of north america cannot handle that and that must be put down and punished immediately and that's what they do and that's why it's so hard for us to say no you know what the covert abusers do is they do the guilt trips Mm. no no it's all right no No, that's fine. Go ahead and go out. No, you guys just go have a good time. I'll just stay here. Just forget about me. Yeah, it's just pathetic. So they do the guilt trip. So any relationship that doesn't like you having boundaries, that does not respect the word no, or that has fear, obligation, or guilt, fog, is an unhealthy, toxic relationship. And that's why it's so hard for us to start building boundaries. So boundaries go back to self-esteem. Everything basically boils back down to self-esteem. People with good self-esteem have got good boundaries. We understand that we cannot be all things to all people and that we do have to say no. And if somebody else gets disappointed, well, I'm terribly sorry you are disappointed and I still need to take care of myself. Thanks. Bye. Yeah.
2: yeah. Yeah. So, on the topic of guilting, because I think that could be such a difficult thing for people in the act of setting boundaries you know when the narcissist will start guilting them like how could you say this to me like i'm i've been so good to you blah 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 like there's guilting happening in the moment and i know there's right. a lot of people who are going no contact or gray rock which gray is rock. for less yeah. for people who don't know just like less minimizing the contact how do you deal with the guilt there like oh but this is my parent they're going to die one day like how can i not talk to them all these good memories how does one navigate this guilt
1: So you've got to realize that healthy relationships do not have guilt. Healthy parents do not do guilt trips. Healthy kids are not made to feel bad for taking care of themselves. Mm, They're not. And you will want to do a goodbye letter to your parent. And in this goodbye letter, you're going to do the good. What was good about them? But here's the thing. We have a really bad tendency to get stuck in the good. Because... Think of all the social things that say, oh, don't speak ill of your parents or don't speak ill of the dead or don't, you know, da, 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 da. look, I'm giving you permission to do whatever you need to do. <laughs> <Okay>? <laughs> so you do the good, but then you move on to the bad. The ugly, the horrific, and at the very, very end of your letter, your goodbye letter, you write your own Declaration of Independence. Mm. Dear mom, dear dad, I'm a, you know, 30-year-old female or male or whatever, and guess what? It's okay for me to have a life, so you don't get to live in my head rent-free anymore. Fuck the fuckity fuck fuck out of fucking fuck you, and then whatever else you need to say, then trot it out to the barbecue. Do not fucking send it. Trot it out to the barbecue, (laughs) read it out loud once. And then burn it. Yeah, I can't tell you the number of people who are like, oh, I'm going to send it. And I'm like, no, you're not.
2: Oh, my so, gosh, yes.
1: Yeah. Because all that does, listen to me now, believe me later. Narcissists don't care whether the attention is positive or negative as long as they are being paid attention to. So if you send that letter, you are just giving them more drama fuel for their fire. Oh, man. Don't
2: yeah. do it. They love the drama, any kind of oh, drama. Yes.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. And you're going to have to get used to walking away or hanging up or discontinuing the texting. So, you know, and that's the other thing is that narcissists will call, hang up, call, hang up, call, hang up. If you don't answer, you just let them keep doing that. Right. Because you're no obligation to pick up that phone. Gray rocking is when you Don't have any emotion in your voice. So the narcissist is attempting to manipulate. They're trying to guilt trip. They're trying to make you fearful. They're trying to make you sad. They're trying to make you. They're trying to manipulate. And you just go, uh huh, uh huh, uh huh, uh huh. I'm sorry, you feel that way. Uh huh, uh huh. Gotta go. Look at the time. Click. Mm -hmm. Yeah. See where I'm going?
2: Yeah. Yeah. So, So with this, because then I imagine like in in a scenario like you've just described, like a narcissist would be like, oh, all I do is try to call you, you never answer me, you don't want to talk to me, da-da-da-da-da, and maybe start showing people, look how many times I've called him and he never answers me. How would you recommend a person not, because it's hard to not react. I mean, I think by default, we want to defend ourselves and kind of, we want validation that we were right. So how does one get over that?
1: So you have to, this is what I'm saying, it's really helpful to have a counselor yeah. so that you can go to the counselor and go, holy shit, this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened they're doing this, blah, 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 because you're going to get your validation from healthy people, not unhealthy people. So what abusers do is they, because they are so unfair, because they are so crazy, because they are so... You know, involving everybody in their dog in their personal business because they need an audience, they need a drama triangle. We have learned at a very young age that we always have to explain or defend our every action. You do not. Okay. You do not.
0: What, what do the you recommend person- to people to who it's happening at work? Their bo- their boss is a narcissist, their coworker, their CEO, not their family.
1: So that's a little bit of a stickier situation. Now, if you can navigate it and stay detached, like not get, take things personally and just go, okay, they're a narcissist. I'll just, you know, stay as far away from them as I possibly can and, you know, blow smoke up their ass when you can and Mm. then just keep doing your job. That's great. Where people get into trouble, though, is they start taking things personally Mm. and or and or. The boss or the CEO decides that they are going to replay their childhood through their business and develops a scapegoat, a golden child, an ignored middle child. And that's how they start making the whole system work is the way that their childhood was.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And that's fucked up and dysfunctional. I personally I don't like corporations. This, there's a reason why I do not work for any other agency because I saw the politics going on and I went Fuck y'all,
2: bitches! Yeah,
1: That's crazy. Yuck, yuck. Yeah, and I got out because I was like, "Uh, uh-uh. uh, you're all a bunch of unethical pieces of shit." No, thank you. So,
2: mm.
1: do you see where I'm going with yeah. that?
0: Before we wrap up this podcast, which has been very eye-opening for me, what are you? The podcast is called Hacking the Hustle. So, I want to know what are you working on? What are your hustles? What are your current projects and and side side projects that you're working on to try and build your business, build your brand? and and move forward
1: well i am going to be in washington dc doing a meet and greet at the union station at the dunkin donuts there in the food court um and that's what i like to do i like to travel the country and meet people and meet them personally so that i can kind of individualize okay you're going through this well this might help try that you know what i'm saying Mm -hmm. um so i'm doing that i'm working on my third book which uh, i've got to get this done by summer oh my god anyway (laughs) So, you know, just doing the meet and greets and uh, you know, this year we were going to do another cruise, but then the coronavirus started up, so that's not happening, but yeah. um, but you know just things like that. And really what I love is I love meeting people and I love traveling. So mm-hmm. the fact that I I get to go out and do these meet and greets and meet people and go to different places and see new things, that's my jam. I love it. Awesome. That's that it. Mm-hmm. so yeah that's what i'm up to
0: where can people find you
1: um so i am on youtube every sunday at noon uh arizona standard time arizona good god what are we going into nick tomorrow the time is changing i don't understand it. anyway <laughs> arizona arizona does not change time so east coast is going to be three o'clock and west coast i think is going to be 12 so i think arizona and California around the same time now so it's at noon on YouTube it's called we need to talk with Chris Godinas, and that is where you can find me I'm also on Facebook with the uh, page of the same name or if you want to connect with me on a more personal level you can go to my LPC page and that's where I post basically everything that I post on my personal page so please don't friend me because I won't friend you back but if you want to if you want to connect with me on the LPC page you
2: can I'm so gonna do that, mm. and I highly recommend everybody to watch Chris's videos because they're so insightful. And I really believe that almost every family, there's some kind of element of abuse going on and it's just so easily overlooked because of the way we've stereotyped abuse. So I mean, yeah, absolutely watching your videos has been so eye-opening and so empowering and I'm so, so grateful for the work that you're doing.
1: Well, thank you. And I am grateful that I can do this work. It's it's really it's been a long, hard journey, but it's also been incredibly rewarding. Nothing makes me happier than getting emails from people going, I'm out, I'm safe, I'm happy, I'm with a therapist, my life is great. And I'm like, Yes Amazing. So yeah.
0: So before we let you go, what are some words of wisdom, some nuggets of knowledge that you'd like to leave with those with us?
1: Always, always love yourself you are with you from the second you are born until the second you die and beyond and it's never okay to sacrifice who you are for somebody else to go
0: Mm -hmm. amen so always
1: always do do self work. always and don't be afraid so narcissists like to put a lot of fear into us and my suggestion is go do the things that the narc said don't do. So like for me it was like don't travel to a communist country. First thing I did I went to East Berlin.
2: Love it. So- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Be fearless.
1: Be fearless
0: love-
2: and love yourself. Amazing. Absolutely.
1: Amazing,
0: Chris. Thank you so much for your time. This has been awesome. You're so welcome
2: yeah thank you, guys. thank you I mean if it was up to me I would stay on the phone and take advantage of you and like squeeze all <laughs> the advice out of you mm-hmm. possible but uh well,
1: you know if you ever need help with any cases or anything I'm happy to consult thank so. you
2: so so much and sorry you're about all think. of the technical issues before we started this podcast <laughs> oh
1: buddy not your fault I am so technologically impaired it's not even funny
2: no you're awesome <laughs> <laughs>
1: all right you guys you have a wonderful day
2: you too. bye Thank so
1: Chris. much. Bye. Bye.